นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดำมังสังขังนมัสสานเราจะตอบคำถามในวันนี้ที่เรียกว่าทุกคืนเราร้องเพราะทุกผิดพลาดที่ฉันทำต่อพระพุทธเจ้าขอให้การยอมรับของเราได้รับการยอมรับและในอนาคตมีความจำเป็นต่อการยอมรับของพระพุทธเจ้าทั้งในเรื่องของพระพุทธศาสนาและพระพุทธศาสนาฉันไม่มีความหมายเกี่ยวกับคำว่าทุกคืนเราร้องเพราะทุกผิดพลาดที่ฉันทำต่อพระพุทธเจ้าขอให้การยอมรับของพระพุทธเจ้า Probably something that, uh, well, many of us, if not all of us, have wondered about from time to time. I, I certainly, when I first uh, came across this particular uh, set of chants in Thailand, I wondered what uh, what was going on there. I don't think I ever asked anybody, but over the years, I know I uh, have come to my own. Feeling of uh, conviction about the relevance of this, so I'm not going to be able to respond to the question from a place of uh, representing the tradition, uh, because uh, I've been out of Thailand for 27 years, and while I was in Thailand, I never asked anybody what it meant, but I'm happy to uh, share my own contemplations on it. Personally, I think it's very important, and it goes along with other practices that I've encouraged, like the dedication of punya at the end of the day, um, cultivation of the Brahma Viharas. The, yeah. For many of us, we we perhaps come to this path of practice tired of thinking and and just feel like it's just like a break and you. Try a little meditation, a little focusing, concentrating on the breath, and experience that it's possible to uh, make the mind still. And in that stillness, is its brightness and clarity, and it's a, it's a relief. But I would say it's a mistake to think that just making the mind empty and taking a break is uh, the whole point. Far from it. There are many other skills offered in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, for supporting us in our uh, as we walk along this this path, we do need lots of skills because yeah, it's not the case that we can always just run off to our cushion and and sit there and concentrate on the breath and get still. I mean, sometimes it's just an onslaught of frustrating conditions. And just sometimes it seems like there's never any end, and uh, maybe we but we do need more than. Than just opportunities to uh, get away from it all and and make the mind quiet. So I personally consider ritual practice has got a, a very important place, uh, a very important place in in developing skills and resources, strengths, abilities on this path. And perhaps 
um, even more so for perhaps for, for lay people, where you're not surrounded by uh, a community of people who share your, your values, to have triggers, uh, pointers, uh, reminders that bring you back to this embodied awareness that there are some concerns that matter much more in life than others. You know, there are casual, superficial concerns, you know, like whether somebody likes me or not. I mean, what difference is it going to make whether somebody likes me when I'm dying? Yeah. Or when I'm dying, I'm not going to worry about whether, you know, Hiriko doesn't like me at the moment. Yeah. Well, he may like me, I don't know, but that's not the point. You know, but whether he likes me or doesn't like me is not of any ultimate consequence. You know, if I'm dying, I couldn't give a hoot whether Hiriko liked me or not. I'm sure about that. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a relatively important concern. Yeah. There are much more important concerns, and that's uh, my attitude towards the spiritual path, <coughs> yeah, that to get in touch with those heart matters, those, the, the deepest concerns, uh, those things that we're going to be thinking about when we're dying, those things we're going to be feeling about, you know, like whether there's going to be remorse or regret, like, did I miss the boat? Did I waste my life? Or I wish I hadn't done that. Well, we don't want to be thinking like that when we're dying. I don't. I don't want to be thinking, like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> just say, oh, just, that was a good life. And just gratitude. There's a heart of gratitude. Oh, yeah. All the resentments are, have gone and the feeling of, of you know, having got it wrong. We've just forgiven ourselves and moved on. So uh, how do we live a life like that? Well, I think, as I was saying, that ritual practice has got a very important part to play. And so we do this chanting, and every night it's the same. Yeah. Or if you do the morning chanting, you've seen these same chanting books have been reprinted in the, whatever it is, in the, the 30 years we've been in Britain, we've been doing the same chants. And it's pretty boring, really. You come to the monastery, and year after year, there's the same boring chants, and it's not even very nice. Really. People chant out of tune, and, and you know, what are we saying all this stuff for anyway? Well, there's there's a message in there, I think, in the predictability and the stability of it. I think that's part of the ritual. We don't keep changing these things. We are boring. We do boring for Britain, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> We are boring. That's how part of our function. I was saying to somebody the other day, the sangha is like the drone with the bagpipes, you know? <laughs> you know? When they play the bagpipes. Can you imagine playing the bagpipes without the drone? I mean, you know, it's not worth listening to. But all that other little high flute and stuff that comes and goes, the exciting bit, you know, that people think is really wonderful, that's, it's the drone, uh, the drone. <laughs> well, that's part of what the sangha is about. That's part of what this is about, the, the symbolic level of the refuges, we're, we're predictable, we're boring. Yeah. <laughs> We've been doing this. We haven't changed our robes for 2,500 years. This, this, is, this is not fashionable. Uh, you might like to change it. You know, you know, the best we can do is just change the tone a little bit. You know, sometimes you say, oh, that's a nice brown. <laughs> <laughs> 
You do, actually, you don't mind. So, you really, you know, we get pretty picky about what, what brown we'll wear. <laughs> you think it's just brown, it's not, believe me. <laughs> So the way we relate to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, there is the uh, lineal, logical, analytical level, but there is also the, the uh, symbolic level. Uh, and and the, the force of symbols, I think, is something worth contemplating. Yeah. Now, of course, the symbolic Buddha is not the ultimate Buddha, but the symbolic Buddha has got, got its place. And... So when we chant these words, these are ritual statements uh, in reference to the symbol of the Buddha. You know, chanting words are sound symbols. All words are sound symbols. I mean, the word hot is just a noise. You could also just say plop. You know, but plop doesn't mean hot. They sound very similar. But we know the word hot symbolizes an experience yeah, which we're all very clear to, with, we're all very familiar with. You know, so words are sound symbols, and uh, when we say things like, like this here, that um, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Buddha. Uh, yeah. We're relating to the symbol of the Buddha with these statements of asking for forgiveness, and and bowing down. Now, of course, um, it's probably, yeah, we should bear in mind that the Buddha himself didn't recommend Buddha images. Anybody has any doubts about that? Buddha images turned up about 2,000 years ago in Afghanistan when the Greeks came along and met the Buddhists. And so the first Buddha images, if you've been to the VNA, you'll know the first Buddha images from the Gandhara period have all got togas and top knots, like, uh, like uh, wise old Greek men. So then they adapted as the years went by and the centuries went by, and so now you have Indian Buddhas and uh, Sri Lankan Buddhas and Burmese Buddhas and Thai Buddhas and Cambodian Buddhas and Javanese Buddhas. I love Javanese Buddhas. They're probably my favorites. And Japanese Buddhas and Tibetan Buddhas. And, yeah. Ours here is a, uh, a kind of a, um, a, a, a mixture mixture of, of, of elements uh, people it's very it works very well because the Sri Lankan people come here and they, they really like it and the Thai people come in they really like it and the Indian people they like it and the Nepalese like it and the Westerners like it so it, it works but of course it's not the Buddha image in fact I think it's my opinion that if the, the Buddha knew about it he would have had something to say about it I don't think he would have encouraged it uh, he did encourage as you probably know uh, Reflecting on the teacher with the symbols of the Bodhi tree. Yeah, he did. He talked about symbols. Now, Bodhi tree. I mean, you can get interested in the, the botanical aspect of the Bodhi tree, ficus, whatever it is. And uh, but he did hold it up as a symbol, or the empty seat, the seat from which he gave the Dhamma talks uh, that he gave, or the wheel, like this Dhamma chakra wheel here with the eight spokes, or the same wheel we have at the entrance to the Dhamma hall. Um, and also the footprint, which uh, is not exactly something that Westerners run to bow down to, footprints, but they're something that worked in India. So these were the four symbols that the Buddha encouraged, and later on, of course, also came along the stupa, which it seems was probably 
something uh, that got built over the funeral pyre when a great being was cremated. It got created into something artful and then got shaped into, into what we now recognize as the stupa. So, but as human beings do, they created this, uh, these Buddha images. And so millions of people over the last 2,500 years or 2,000 years have uh, used this to symbolize the Buddha. And so we, we bow down to it and we say these sort of things. But it's the language of the heart. It's not the language of the mind. This is not a linear logical language. Yeah. We've got to really got to understand that if we, if, we, if we apply this logic to this domain, if we apply the, the logic of the mind to the heart, we can get very confused. Yeah. It's like watching, you know, if Man United come and play Newcastle and then at the end of the game, you know, they really don't like each other, okay, these two. And they really, you know, when they're playing the game, they're really sending some negative vibes towards each other and each one wants the other one not just to lose but to make mistakes so they can win and, you know, not wishing nice things for each other, not all running around wishing loving kindness for each other. You know, they really want the other to lose desperately. And, uh, and you know, some little argy-bargy goes on. Anyway, but then at the end of the match, what happens? You know, Man United and Newcastle, they finish the game. What do they do? Do they come up and headbutt each other? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, if they came and headbutted each other, I mean, you'd be all disappointed, right? You don't, we don't like that. But what happens is they, you know, they've had this ritual war with each other, and then they come out and then they shake hands. And then we all feel good, right? Now, what is it symbolizing? It's not because they want to hold hands. Yeah. What, are they, what, are they, <laughs> what do they shake hands for? It's just saying, okay, that's that, that's finished. Now we begin again. Yeah, we, we're ending this, and now we're beginning again. And that's very important. That, that ritual is very important. If it wasn't important, human beings wouldn't have been doing it all this time. It's the sword hand, isn't it, or the dagger hand, the one that would, you know, could be used to create violence. We offer it in friendship and offer harmlessness. And in that gesture at that time, in front of all these other people, they don't do it downstairs. Well, they might do it downstairs, but they do it on the pitch. Everybody sees them. That's an important ritual. It's the ending of this stage and the beginning again. And so it's about renewal. It's a, a very important uh, ritual renewal. And so... That's how I appreciate this, uh, this uh, daily offering of uh, asking for forgiveness for any shortcomings that we have. And we uh, say, for whatever wrong actions I have committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted so that in future there will be a restraint regarding the Buddha. And so when we ask for forgiveness, what we're doing is we're we're establishing a trigger in the mind. It's like, it's like implanting, it's like programming. It's doing little programming. Yeah. Just the same as, you know, when you, if you fall out with somebody and then you apologize and say, well, I really hope this doesn't happen again. Well, it's because we hope it doesn't happen again that we do it. Yeah. And we really hope that this isn't going to happen again. So this is a way of establishing mindfulness. This is a way of cultivating mindfulness, a way of reflecting on the consequence of our heedlessness we reflect on the, conscious, uh, the consequence of our heedlessness and by acknowledging our past heedlessness with a sense of remorse, then by this statement of acknowledgement, we're conditioning and we're generating the wish, may this acknowledgement of my fault help bring about more mindfulness in the future. That's, that's how I understand it. I think it's a very useful ritual to do. 
Now, with the, uh, with the Buddha, uh, as I say, we have the symbolic Buddha, and we can be relating to that with the symbolic language, or we can be, we can be imagining the teacher. Now, it depends what sort of mind you have as to whether the idea of the Buddha who lived in India or Nepal 2,500 and something years ago, whether that really conjures up something. I mean, for some people, just the word Buddha you know, just to think or to say the word Buddha fills them with bliss and to think that there was a human being who realized Dhamma and walked on this planet, you know, planet Earth. This, you, know, you can go there to Bodh Gaya and, and you can go to the holy places, Rajgir, where the Buddha's Kuti is and, and where the great disciples lived. And, and you can go to Lumbini and where the, apparently the Buddha was born. And, and for a lot of people, they're literally overcome with bliss. And joy, just to think of the Buddha that he walked on this planet. And to think of the teacher. After his enlightenment, he could have just sat back and had an easy time, but out of compassion, out of selfless compassion, his response was, what can I do to help? Yeah, that was the realization increased the sensitivity to suffering, and his aspiration from the beginning was to realize liberation for the sake of all beings, so that after his liberation, after his realization, the the natural inclination was to generate help. And so he spent the rest of his life, up to about 80, you know, traveling around uh, generating benefit. And lived a pretty harsh life from all records. And sometimes he went without food. And there's a record there of when the Buddha was living off horse chaff, you know, food that was given to the horses. I mean, there wasn't any food around. And, well, he could have gone back to the palace and, you know, as an enlightened guru, had a pretty cushy number, uh, but he didn't. And so reflecting on these things and, and the compassion of the Buddha and the wisdom of the Buddha, yeah, uh, I find myself, I mean, it doesn't, it's not something that necessarily fills me with the bliss, but it is something that does give me a sense of incredible gratitude. I just feel so grateful that a human being lived, realized Dhamma, and then taught in a way that I can have some understanding of. Uh, and the idea of a person does it uh, for me. It, it means something. And so, again, to reflect, you know, that here's the teacher, and I call myself a Buddhist. And if I fall short of what a disciple of the Buddha uh, should be doing, well, then actually it's helpful to ask for forgiveness. You know? So, for whatever wrong actions I've done towards the Buddha, you know, I ask for forgiveness and. It feels good. I find it feels good to say sorry. You say, oh, I regret that. It feels good. Uh, it's not saying, oh, well, the Buddha, he died a long time ago. He's not going to worry. He didn't see anyway. And I'm doing my best. I'm not a bad bloke. And, you know, I'll just let's get on with it anyway and roll some more weed and watch another television program. I mean, you know, the mind could go like that. Personally, <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy having a ritual. I just say, okay, well, begin again. We did that, we made these mistakes, fell short of what I really aspire towards as a Buddhist, as a representative of the Buddhist teaching. It's like, for instance, if, um, if there was a supporter of the monastery here, somebody who put it around that they were a, you know, a friend and supporter of Hana Buddha's monastery, and then the next thing they got busted and was all over the papers that they were running a fraudulent online stolen credit card business. And... Uh, it was all over the news. Well, you know, the appropriate thing to do in such a case would be to apologize to the monastery. 
you consider yourself a supporter of the monastery and purporting to be one thing, you're actually being another, well then, a part of the way of healing that, yeah, there's a betrayal there, part of the way of healing that is to apologise. And, and so one can view it in that way. And then another aspect of it, which I also find very helpful, and perhaps the most profound aspect of it, remembering that we're talking rituals here, that it's not lineal logical stuff, um, we're talking in pictures and poetry, that essentially, for me, the Buddha is that quality of knowing that has got no limitations. You know, we, one of the chants we do, Apamano Buddho, Apamano Dhammo, Apamano Sankho. The Buddha is limitless, the Dhamma is limitless, the Sangha is limitless. And it's because the Buddha is limitless that he was so great. It's because the Buddha's consciousness was free from the limitations that we experience as suffering. We suffer, why? Not because we've got consciousness, not because there's awareness, but because of what we do with our awareness. We impose these limitations on awareness by our habitual habits of grasping. It's habitual activity of grasping. You know, we do this. We're, we're consistently doing this, imposing these limitations on awareness, and then we get to this feeling of, I can't handle this anymore, or I don't want to take this anymore, or I won't put up with this anymore. Is that the Buddha speaking? Is that edgeless awareness? Is that purified consciousness speaking? No. What is it? That's me. That's my way of speaking. Now, that's not bad or wrong. We don't need to go in, in that direction. We just say, this dynamic, this is a, an imposition. This is what we impose on awareness habitually. Yeah. And we create this feeling of limitation. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe we do a little meditation and we, we, we let go of this habit of imposing limitations at this point. Like, for instance, you know, I am somebody who always gets angry uh, whenever somebody criticizes me. Yeah. And we reflect on it and we see the cause and effect and we study it and we, we practice uh, loving kindness and compassion for ourselves and all beings and we engage in these different ways of, of addressing this suffering until there's a little letting go. The increase of mindfulness, the strength of mindfulness, uh, the depth of mindfulness is such that in the moment when anger arises and we're about to get caught up in it, there isn't that contraction takes place, there isn't a grasping, there's actually an opening up. And we find that we can feel this irritation, anger, frustration, indignation, whatever it is, but there isn't a suffering. So, oh, that's good, that's, that's good, that's a little realization, that's a little letting go, that brings about a little increase in freedom. And with that increase in freedom, there's a corresponding increase in understanding and sensitivity. Yeah? And there's, we've got an increased capacity for living as a result. But what happens, it's only a matter of time before something else a little bit more frustrating comes along and we've reached our limitations again. Because we've just moved our limitations out a bit, expanded our hearts a little bit, got a little bit bigger in our awareness, we can take a little bit more of life, but we still get limitations. Well, the reason that I go for refuge to the Buddha is because the Buddha's consciousness doesn't have any limitations. It's edgeless. It's limitless. And that's why, it's, a, that's why it's, it's worthy of going for refuge. That's why it's a worthwhile refuge. The Buddha is my refuge. The Buddha is my Lord and guide. And the Buddha is worthy of going for refuge because it is this degree of, 
of freedom that is limitless. It's unshakable. All the causes for suffering, greed, aversion, and delusion, all the poisons have been removed. All the causes and the possibility for those ever arising again have been removed. That's a possibility. That's what the human being that we know as the Buddha realized. And uh, it's symbolized by this. It's talked about as we relate to the teachings as the teacher. But essentially, the here and now Buddha is this possibility, and that's what I go for refuge to. So when we offend that, when we allow ourselves to, we default to our habit of imposing limitations on awareness, basically, we, we, we're betraying our commitment to the Buddha. And uh, we do it all the time, uh, through the day. I don't know how many millions of times we do it in any given day. And so what's good, I find at the end of the day, just to remember that and just say, well, this is my refuge is to this edgeless awareness, to this, this freedom, this possibility. I believe this is, this is what human beings really can be like. Many times people will, if somebody makes a mistake and somebody say, oh, well, it's only human. And they say, well, you know. First thing, I don't, that, my view of what a human being is is not somebody who's, who's uh, compulsively heedless. Uh, so my view of a human being is what the Buddha is. The Buddha is that's what a human being can be. And so when I fall short of that, that's my actually betraying uh, my commitment to the Buddha. And it feels very good. I find it's really good just to bring that up and just say, okay, well, for whatever wrong actions I've done towards the Buddha, whatever, however many times I've allowed my habits of heedlessness to be reactivated and I've imposed these limitations yeah. and then created the causes for suffering now and in the future, yeah. may this be acknowledged. I acknowledge this. I don't think of some deity out there listening to me, but rather this is like this is like speaking to that potential, that possibility within. Yeah. And and as such, it becomes a cause for the future arising of more moments of letting go, you know, of truly honouring the refuge to the Buddha. And likewise with the Dhamma. Yeah, the, uh, it's interesting actually when I, I talked about those symbols that the Buddha held up. Uh, as worthy of, 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 of paying respects to, mm-hmm. included, actually encouraged going to the place of enlightenment of the Buddha and, and going to such places with faith, with devotion, uh, is a, a good practice. Now, that doesn't mean to say we have to get all superstitious about it and say, well, if you've never been to Bodh Gaya, you're not a proper Buddhist. That would be, uh, that's uh, really off the mark. But he did encourage paying respect to, uh, in front of these symbols. But he didn't, as I was saying, have an image of himself. He discouraged people from paying too much attention to the image of himself. He said, if you want to see the Buddha, you see the Dhamma. If you want to see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. But to really see the Buddha, you've got to see what the Buddha realized to orient ourselves towards what the Buddha realized. That's seeing the Buddha. And so these images that the Buddha held up, the Bodhi tree, it's not a personality. The seat, it's not a personality. The footprint, it's not a personality. The wheel, it's not a personality. It's certainly not a personality. These are symbols really for the Dhamma. And so we have the symbols for the Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra, we have the and we have the uh, abstractions on the Dhamma, like the Tripitaka and the case down the back of the hall there, the, you know, the, 
the Sutta Pitaka, the Vinaya Pitaka, and the Abhidhamma Pitaka, these, uh, these collections of the Buddha's teachings, the discourses. We have these, but these are abstractions on the Dhamma. This is not the real Dhamma. Okay, we treat these things with respect. We put them in a proper place. And as with Buddha images, if you have one in your house, it, you don't use it as a bookend because if you do, it doesn't have any value. I mean, uh, a bookend or, I mean, it's just like having, having a, a gnome out of the garden, isn't it? You know, you, you could take a gnome out of the garden and use it as a bookend. So it'd be kind of quaint, wouldn't it, really? A gnome, a Buddha image is all the same if you're using it as bookends. So we don't use Buddha images as bookends. If we have a Buddha image, we put it up in a higher place. It's something we elevate. We elevate those things that we consider worthy. And we look up to it, all of these suggestions. In fact, there is also uh, an um, anatomical uh, aspect to this, whereby the scientists uh, have determined the, the, the particular angle of the eyes when the eyes look up. And a certain angle, it generates a particular brain rhythm. And there's, there's, so there's some logic to where you actually put your Buddha. If you look down to your Buddha, well, that'll have a certain effect. If you look up to your Buddha image, that'll have a certain effect. Likewise with the Dhamma books, with the Tipitaka, you've got uh, the suttas and the Vinaya, and the, you've got these, these books, and you put them in a place where they've got their own place. Not because of some magical superstitious belief, but because by investing them with a particular attitude, we cultivate a particular disposition. So that means like with this Dhamma hall, for instance, when we come to this Dhamma hall, we bow to the shrine. Come to the Dhamma hall, we get quiet. We come to the Dhamma hall, we take our hat off. Now these are all ritual statements which, which create an attitude towards this space. And if you do this for a while and you get a lot of people doing this in this particular space, then then uh, when you come back to the space, you just come in here, whew, you feel something. Yeah. What is it? Is it magic? I don't think it's magic. Uh, yeah. This is the attitude that's being generated, and it has an effect. If people don't, don't make that kind of effort in this kind of space, well, then we come in and we don't feel anything. Yeah. So with the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, these refuges that, that we're encouraged to, to hold up as, as things truly worthy of orienting our hearts, towards, yeah. with the symbol, the symbolic level of the Buddha image, the Dhamma Chaka, the Dhamma books, we put them in suitable places. Uh, we keep them dusted, keep them clean. Yeah. And likewise with the, uh, with, well, with the, 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 that's the symbolic aspect of the Dhamma, the true, our true Dhamma, the true Dhamma is anything that leads us to realization. Talking about the Eightfold Path, so you can talk about the Eightfold Path, Samma, Ditti, Samma, Sankhava, Samma, Vajra, Samma, Kamata, Samma, Hajira, Samma, Vayama, Samma, Sati, Samma, Samadhi. The Eightfold Path in Pali, we, we all know the Eightfold Path. And, and then you can talk about it, what's meant by right view, right thought, right speech, right action, and so on. And, uh, and then, but then you come across something that's not classically contained within what the scriptures refer to as the Eightfold Path, and say, oh, that's not Dhamma. You know, I, know, I know personally I've been criticized because over the years it's happened that I've uh, encouraged the use of psychotherapy, uh, sometimes for Sangha members, sometimes for lay people. They've been practicing for many years sometimes, and, and people come up against something that they get stuck. 
and they try everything. They're meditating and they meditate more, go on solitary retreats and go and see this teacher, go on that retreat, go here, go there, and still running around in circles, just coming across the same feeling of stuckness. Well, it's been my experience and it's my view that there are some people around who've got skills in the realm of psychotherapy who can recognize a particular pattern of mental activity and reflect it back to the person who's suffering from it. And in offering that reflection, it's like a switch is turned on, a switch that perhaps ideally should have been turned on early on in life but wasn't. Yeah. It's not just the horrible things that happen to young people that cause trauma, it's also some of the things that don't happen that ideally should have happened that can leave trauma. And in dealing with some of these traumas, sometimes what's called for is skillful application of what we call these days psychotherapeutic technique. And so if uh, somebody who after, you know, somebody who's suffering, for instance, of something like depression or, or self-harming yeah. and, and just caught in a, a cycle and can't get out of it, and then, and then they, they think, you know, well, maybe I should go and see a psychotherapist. And then their meditation, their Buddhist teacher says, oh, that's not Buddhism. Yeah, well, I'd say change your teacher. Yeah. Because what the Buddha pointed out was anything that accords with the Eightfold Path is Dhamma. And so if uh, your psychotherapist happens to be able to help you develop the kind of reflective awareness whereby you're able to see and let go of self-destructive habits of thinking or speaking or, or behaving, then that's the Eightfold Path also. So the symbolic Dhamma is what's recorded in the teachings. But... Uh, I think uh, it's, it's important for us to consider the real Dhamma, the true Dhamma, is that which leads us forward on the path of liberation. Anything that really leads us forward on the path of liberation is Dhamma. Yeah. Maybe it's Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. When Ajahn Sumato came to this country and was talking to Ajahn Chah about teaching Buddhism, he said, well, teach them Dhamma, but just call it Christianity. Yeah. doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter what it's called. Yeah. We had a we had a uh, Jesuit priest living in our monastery in Thailand. Uh, poor Pose, Father Pose, or poor is a village word for for father. Same in English, isn't it? Poor. So poor Pose was this uh, French Jesuit monk, and interestingly, he he had gone to Thailand as a missionary, um, and in those days he, he he could only speak French, and he learned to speak the local dialect, uh, the northeast of Thailand, Isan, it's called. And at one stage he came down with a disease which sent him deaf. And so he never really learned to speak English. So when he was staying in our monastery, those who could speak French was fine, or those who could speak fluent Isan, the local dialect, was fine. Uh, but uh, for the rest of us, <laughs> we had uh, sign language. But uh, he would sit down with Ajahn Chah for hours and have the most wonderful conversations. He and Ajahn Chah were great Dhamma friends. He didn't have any problem shave his head, sit down the end of the line with the Anagarikas. Actually, he was a very highly respected uh, Christian scholar, and sometimes you would find uh, other Christian scholars would stop off on their journey from America, going to some other place on the planet, and they would come to the northeast of Thailand just to come to our monastery to see Father Pose, to talk about aspects of uh, their Christian religion, because he was so highly regarded. But for him, it was no problem. He just had a little bench out in the forest and a mosquito net, and He'd sit down the end of the line with the Anagarikas with his head shaved, wearing white, and 
run around collecting the spittoons of all these young upstart Buddhist monks and uh, no problem at all. He could bow to the Buddha and it wasn't a problem at all. You talk to him about says, what's the problem? <laughs> so the symbols, the words, the gestures, the, these are out of forms. The spirit, the actuality, is of a different frequency altogether. So as we relate to these forms, you know, and, and we say things like, uh, uh, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha, and may my acknowledgement of fault help me in the future. This is, a, this is a ritual, but to remember the spirit behind it is like we're falling, many times we fall short of our commitment to the refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And so this is a way of, of acknowledging it and beginning again. Our commitment to the Buddha, the teacher, that state of awareness, purity, the Dhamma, the teachings that we periodically just dismiss and ignore and you know, even like keeping the precepts and just, you know, during the day, just kind of little deviation here or there. Well, the wise thing to do at the end of the day is just say, okay, well, my commitment to Sila Dhamma, my commitment to this aspect of the teachings, the precepts, yeah, it's very important, it's core. And so acknowledge, okay, we don't get all guilt-ridden and judgmental about it. That's, that's not Dhamma. No, that's the sort of stuff that we want to see and let go of. But just to acknowledge our fault and begin again. That's the ritual. You know, really, really helpful. And the Sangha, you know, the uh, in Theravadan Buddhism, there's two ways traditionally that the Sangha is spoken about. Uh, as we all know, probably, I expect, the, the word Sangha literally means community. And these days, it's uh, quite normal in the West, since I think it was um, Jack Cornfield and, and Sankarajita, these people, uh, in the early days, translated the Sangha, the word, with a much, much broader meaning than it was traditionally uh, used in. And, and that's fair enough. Uh, what would be unfortunate, and what I think is unfortunate, is where... where Considering our local group of Buddhist meditators, uh, which might be called the Sangha, considering that one of the refuges. Because yeah. the refuges, the three refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha that the Buddha recommended as, as orientations of our heart commitment, our heart's deepest commitment, are things that are safe and secure. And so, for instance, the Sangha, uh, there's this two ways of talking about it traditionally in Theravada Buddhism. One is the Arya Sangha, that is those uh, human beings, men or women, uh, uh, monks or nuns uh, or novices or uh, anybody who has arrived at unshakable realization of Dhamma. Anybody whose heart has, has been freed from the agony of neurotic doubt regarding the nature of the way. You know, if the insight has arrived, uh, taken taken the, the person beyond uh, that level of delusion and you, you've entered into what's called stream entry, sotapanna, yeah, then from that point onwards uh, one is, uh, is not plagued by doubts about what you're supposed to be doing in practice. And so uh, such people are considered the Arya Sangha. The other aspect of the Sangha is the, what's perhaps more a symbolic Sangha, which is the robe wearers. Now, the reason that monks and nuns are a suitable uh, object of refuge is because of the, the degree to which they've put aside the commitment to my way. So 
If these monks and nuns are not living by the discipline as laid down by the Buddha, well, then, no, they're not a suitable, suitable object of refuge. But if they have committed themselves and they are keeping to the, the, uh, the training that the Buddha laid down, then, yes, it can serve as a, as a suitable object of refuge because it's not personality. It's not what I want. It's not how much money I've got. It's not my reputation. These, these things are very un, unreliable. Not something that we want to, you know, go for refuge to. Yeah. So, uh, again, in this, uh, this uh, question here of, you know, for whatever wrong actions I've done towards the Sangha, here we're relating to, to the, as I, as I understand it, the embodiment of the Dhamma. This is like flesh and blood Dhamma. The Buddha, well, he's kind of out there, really, you know, pretty big and great and, and historic and, and so on and, and, and made of gold and whatever. Um, the Dhamma, it's truth, it's, it's to be realized. But the Sangha is about flesh and blood human beings, people who eat and, and go to the bathroom and uh, you know, suffer from arthritis and such things. Yeah, people like me. And so the fact that there are people, people like that around who have realized Dhamma and are committed in their whole lifestyle to the realization of Dhamma, and that, that I can go and see and I can make offerings to and I can show respect towards and I can communicate with, that I can talk in my language about what's going on in life. That's a wonderful thing. I think that relationship is, is, is a very important aspect of the refuges, to have that kind of human relationship and that embodiment of the refuges. And so if, to whatever degree, we... Uh, we fall short of our, our commitment to that refuge uh, in our own understanding, whether anybody knows about it or not, uh, then to make the statement at the end of the day and just say, you know, by body, speech of mind, whatever I've done that has uh, transgressed or has fallen short of my commitment to my relationship with the Sangha, and my relationship with the Dhamma, my relationship with the Buddha, then I acknowledge this. Yeah. It's very important that we're not asking somebody to forgive us, you know, sometimes this, this little thing we say at the end of the chanting, we, you know, we bow down and it can activate old early life bits of conditioning of, you know, asking somebody to forgive us for having been naughty or we're so evil, we need somebody to take away our faults or whatever. Well, such a bit of conditioning can get in the way of our doing these rituals, but my encouragement would be to address that conditioning and find a way of letting go of it uh, so that we can then engage this bit of wholesome, helpful mindful conditioning in support of our practice. Now, that might even mean inventing your own little ritual to take leave of your old conditioning. Uh, I know something that I did, well, many years ago now, but uh, I'd been a monk for quite a long while, and I, and, uh, I realized that there was still something within me that, that felt like somehow I was, really, I was still a Christian, that uh, although you know, I didn't have a lot of good things to say about my early uh, spiritual education, there was a feeling of somehow still being in that flow. And I'd go into a church and I'd have a, a very distinct feeling. And, and so I thought, well, you know, no, no disrespect to Jesus or anybody, but I don't, that's not my teaching. You know, that's, that's not my teacher. I really have, I have tremendous respect for the Buddha and this way. And the teachers, I, you know, the teachers I live with, Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Chah, these teachers and 
and Ajahn Sumato, this lineage that I'm a part of, and and the opportunities to practice that I have, I have tremendous gratitude and respect for this. And and quite frankly, if I you know need to get reborn again, I want to, This this is the path of practice I want to go in. And I don't want to get lost in some other teachings that don't really ring true for me. So no disrespect intended, but I want to make a clear statement of of what I'm committed to. So these are the kind of thoughts I was having, and so I invented a little ritual, wrote down some things, and and made this clear statement of you know, appreciation for the goodness I've received from the Christian tradition. But from here on, I'm taking leave of this teaching, this training, this way, and I'm engaging wholeheartedly, wholebodily, wholemindedly with the Buddhist way. And, and doing it in a ritual way with, with little gestures of writing things down, maybe burning something and, and bowing and offering incense. These gestures that speak to the heart was helpful. Yeah. So it's not something that I'm going to write a book about or necessarily induct other people towards, but I, I would encourage anybody who, who feels that they're obstructed in their engaging with Buddhist rituals because of old conditioning. You know, perhaps consider inventing your own rituals to, uh, yeah, so to let go of some of that. So that's how I understand what this is about. It's a, it's a ritual way of letting go of what's happened yeah, and beginning again, renewing our commitment to the refuges of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> Ah. Uh-huh.